0: We will welcome to our numbers the loyal, true, and brave, shouting battle cry of freedom. And although he may be poor, not a man shall be a slave, shouting the battle cry of freedom. The Civil War Podcast Episode 2, The Peculiar Institution, A Brief Summary of American Slavery. To start this series on the Civil War, we cannot start with the Civil War. We are going to have to roll back because the origins of the war are long and extremely complicated. And slavery was a huge part of those origins. Now, before I get started on this, at no point am I going to defend slavery. I want you to understand that. At the very best, it remained cruel, paternalistic, and repressive. While at the worst, the system became murderous and devoured human lives in the thousands for a burst of profit. But I do have to discuss slavery matter-of-factly and why it turned out to be so hard to remove once it got embedded in society. Slavery is a very unpleasant subject. To me, that's one reason this remains an important topic of study. We should understand why it existed and how it was sustained. Most people, if asked to name the cause of the Civil War, would reply by saying slavery. This is entirely right and correct, but it also doesn't clearly explain much. The mere fact of slavery's existence didn't cause a war to happen on its own, though it was absolutely the most bitter root of the conflict. Slavery drove a wedge, a political and cultural rift between the northern and southern states, but it was not the only such rift in American politics, and events might have gone very differently with only a few different choices by some people. The war began essentially because a combination of slavery, expansionism, and other factors kickstarted a cycle of fear, the fear of losing power in some very powerful people, who became entirely unwilling to permit the possibility of losing that power even at the price of destroying a free nation. There were many reasons this fear took the particular form that it did, yet it was slavery which defined this conflict infinitely more than any other issue. And slavery is what we need to look at first to understand the war. Let's step back to the origins of slavery in the West and why it took root in the young United States. Slavery in the Americas goes back to the early days of colonial settlement. While the first slaves of sorts were American Indians living in the Caribbean, the terrible suffering and death among them induced a Spanish priest, Bartolome de las Casas, to argue for abandoning forced Native American labor and importing African slaves instead. This may have been the first voice raised concerning the use of African slaves in the New World, although some historians argue that he was promoting a practice which was already beginning. And the idea was almost certainly going to occur eventually. African slavery was already heavily used in Portugal at this time, and the Portuguese were already beginning to colonize Brazil as well. In any case, please understand that de la Casas wasn't trying to start a 400 year long injustice across two continents. The slave trade he considered long predated European involvement, and he could not have realized how slavery would grow. De la Casas was a man deeply moved by the suffering he witnessed among the natives of Cuba, and his initial goal was to end such cruelties among them. If it helps, after having already exchanged secular power and wealth for religious life, he later tried to end African slavery with yet more vigorous arguments as well. But by then it had created too many fortunes in the nascent colonies. While I would love to spend all day talking about de la Casas, we now need to skip ahead 150 years to see another growing power. England was late to the colonial game, but the first African slaves brought to the shores of the 13 colonies arrived a mere decade after the second founding of Jamestown in 1610, in what would become the colony of Virginia. The slaves came as the spoils of war sold by Dutch privateers. Even before that, indentured servants from the British Isles and American Indians had both been put to involuntary or semi-voluntary labor, and it should be understood that all three groups existed in a hazy gray area of legal status at the time. There wasn't a great deal of what you'd call settled law in the colonies in those days, and also a distinct lack of the social infrastructure to support it. This was still an early outpost of Europe in a largely unknown continent well, to Europeans. At the time, Jamestown was still struggling for an economic basis. Slavery allowed the colonists to begin profitable settlement based on plantation agriculture for export. As part of that, slavery was merely something people did, not something that they thought about in any codified way. The customs of the time were often brutal. Remember that this happened in the context of the late feudal era, when liberty meant something very different than today. For much of the world, liberty would be a positive attribute of those with the money or power to be mostly free of labor obligations or fear of punishment on a day-to-day basis. For a practical example in the Americas, the indenture contract was not much different than serfdom or slavery in practice, and beatings or whippings for such servants were neither unusual nor forbidden by law. However, one key event in Virginia in 1640 changed, or at least began the process of changing this although we can't simply point to it as the only significant event. A man named John Punch, who was of African ancestry, ran away alongside two European-born servants to Maryland. All three were caught and returned. Although the two other men were sentenced to an extension of service, Punch was sentenced specifically to a lifetime of servitude. This was the first definite example of Africans being held to indefinite service, that is, slavery, in British North America. This reflected society's racism, but it also furthered the legal basis for slavery in the colonies. It expanded that racism. We should also note one other event or process that occurred during the early settling of the colonies, the settlement of South Carolina. Again, I'm simplifying a long process of creating colonial provinces and charters, but starting in the 1670s, the coastal area of what is now South Carolina, began to see the settlement and formation of plantations. Crucially, these plantation masters came from English holdings in the Caribbean, and the owners were by now experienced slave owners, a system they replicated thoroughly in their new home. This is going to become ever so slightly important later on for South Carolina's influence deeply impacted the character and future of slavery In the colonies and later the United States. Now without going into the complicated history, and I would be the first to tell you that entire books can and have been written about it, over the next century or so the three servant groups that we've discussed separated more and more. For European immigrants, mainly English or Scottish, the indenture contract remained but it gradually became quite difficult to enforce while at the same time, it became easier and less expensive to immigrate in other ways, and the whole system slowly dissolved. At the same time, Europeans abandoned Native Americans as a source of forced labor, as the latter were much more easily able to escape physical bondage, or they found other ways out of the system, but also because they lacked resistance to the many diseases of the old world. That left African slaves, and those were used more and more as a labor source. The colonies tended to have a shortage of workers in general, which is one reason why they continued with this. Now, at the same time, these African slaves, or more often Afro Spanish or Afro Dutch people in origin, more and more culturally changed to become African Americans despite the continuous new arrival of enslaved persons. They adopted and absorbed much of the British and later nascent American culture into their own lives. learned English and converted to Christianity if they hadn't already, and mixed culture from Africa and the Caribbean with that of their new home in the colonies. Unfortunately, the vast majority were not part of free communities, but were increasingly considered a separate class, a class of slaves, or perhaps even worse, a caste of slaves, because the status was inherited and not easily escaped. It should be understood, however, that while the institution of slavery and a very casual form of everyday racism certainly existed at the time of the Revolutionary War, society was also not as ossified or exclusionary as it would later become. At the time of the Revolution, most African and European Americans saw nothing extraordinarily odd about fighting alongside one another as comrades in arms on either side of the war. Slavery differed very little in either the northern or southern colonies, It was more common in the South, and there were fewer plantations in the North, but these were differences of degree and suitability rather than kind. The revolutionary period was not yet a slave society, at least not yet. This would begin to change, however, in the years following the American Revolution, but not in a very direct line. The course of history loves to zig before it zags. Several major shifts altered slavery in the United States, and it is these changes, rather than slavery per se, Which proved to be the critical factors that would eventually spark the civil war the first such change is that many of the new american states began to distance themselves from slavery and even outlawed the practice starting in the ideological centers of the revolution such as boston and pennsylvania the men and women who enacted these changes drew inspiration from enlightenment ideals and the ideals of the revolutionary war itself and they were not at all exclusively northern Anti-slavery movements existed in all the states, particularly Virginia, and voluntary manumissions of slaves increased dramatically after 1776. These movements drew support from a variety of sources, but principally took both the forms of secular-oriented societies with a strong grounding in the ideals of equality, and also Christian groups, especially with an evangelical outlook. Nor were the two exclusive— there was a surprising amount of overlap, even though in modern America, you perhaps would not expect to see many similarities. For example, demonstrating the complexities of the early Republic, we should perhaps look at the life of Edward Rutledge. Now, if you've happened to have ever seen the movie 1776 or perhaps the television series, John Adams, you've met Edward Rutledge, or at least an interpretation of him. The dashing young lawyer and slave-owning man of property was also a strong supporter of independence and needed very little time to become persuaded of the Continental cause. He was a delegate, along with John Adams and Benjamin Franklin, to try and find a last-minute peace compromise, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, an officer during the war, and one of the men who formed the Articles of Confederation. Yet while he was a slave owner from Charleston and opposed arming slaves in the center of the slave economy and later the emotional heart of the Confederacy, he also had some qualms about slavery himself. For example, he argued for closing the slave trade at a time when this was still a controversial new idea. In fact, most educated men believed at the time that slavery was on its way out anyway. The United States' founders did agree to close the slave trade within several years after the founding of the nation. And the big tobacco plantations, well, they were already starting to wear out the soil. It didn't seem plausible that slavery had long to live when economics, morality, and secular ideals were all pushing against it. Sure, it might linger on in a limited form, but the future clearly belonged to industry and commerce. All over the United States, slave owners were considering the future of the institution and how it would end many were, in small steps, starting to think about and even plan for the end of slavery. In pragmatic terms, the years immediately following independence saw some relaxation in the practice of slavery. That is, slaves tended to be granted more and more liberty, especially in urban areas of the South, while, as we've discussed, outright manumissions increased. Then Eli Whitney stepped onto the scene, and in the span of a heartbeat, industry and commerce closed ranks in lockstep with slavery. Yes, I exaggerate, but it's important to understand the massive impact that Whitney had. He is one of those strange men who appear from time to time in American history quite out of nowhere and completely upend the nation without really realizing what they've done or intending it at all, and he is by no means the last we'll see on this show. Eli Whitney came from Massachusetts, and in many ways exemplified the spirit of the post-revolutionary war generation. He was born in 1765, and so was too young to have played a role in the war. After a fairly uneventful early life, as far as we know, he graduated college in 1789, putting him in a relatively small class of people, and he went southward to seek his fortune. There he wandered about for a bit, and eventually tried to invent uh, one of the new mechanical devices that were starting to revolutionize the industrial world as surely as the Revolutionary War changed the political. Now later in life, Whitney would in fact accomplish even more as a popularizer of the system of interchangeable parts, as well as developing some very modern accounting practices and more mechanical inventions. But it is for the cotton gin that we're discussing him here, and for which he remains most famous. It is for good reason, because it changed the entire economy of the American South. The cotton gin was a basic mechanical device that separates cotton seeds from the fibers. This was important because doing this work by hand was both labor-intensive and slow, and therefore expensive, even with slave labor. This made cotton planting a rare choice for the farmers and planters, and not a terribly profitable choice at that. Along some coastal areas, you could grow what is called long-staple cotton easier to work, but very limited in scope geographically. In most of the United States, however, only the hardier but tougher short-stable cotton would grow, and this is why Whitney set to work developing his cotton gin. Long story short, it worked. Whitney's gin, with a few modifications from others over the years, which he didn't like to talk about, made it far easier to get useful cotton fibers from the raw bowls. Whitney liked to put about a story that he was inspired by a cat trying to claw chicken through a fence, and it being unable to do more than nab a few feathers. Whether or not the story rings true, this is in short how the gin functions. It grabs the cotton fibers and draws them through a mesh that blocks out the seeds. This would end up having an immense impact on global history because the world was primed and ready for an explosion in the cotton market, and this gave slavery a new lease on life in the United States. For our purposes, it should be understood that access to cotton in the markets of Europe was something worth fighting over. Clothing was expensive in those days, and nations furiously competed to build their own textile industries, trying to lock up the limited sources of supply and block out competition as much as possible. At the time, cotton was a very restricted resource, available in limited quantities from the Americas, the Middle East, and India. The cotton gin opened up the entire American South to cotton cultivation, and growth of this new industry would radically alter the culture and politics of the United States in the process, and, in a small way, the European world as well. In 1790, the United States grew only tiny amounts of cotton, amounts so small that they hardly exist in the economic history of the nation. In 1800, six years after Whitney invented his famous gin, the United States was growing 75,000 bales. Roughly speaking, cotton cultivation would then double every decade, so that it peaked at 5 million bales by 1860. Crucially, the world market for cotton textiles was so strong that despite this incredible growth, the price per bale of cotton only declined by about a third in that entire period. This meant that vast wealth flowed into the hands of planters of cotton, and of course all the middlemen involved in the process too including financiers, factory agents, transporters, and more. Those middlemen would, in their own way, be as important to the story as the planter class. While the South is often described in histories of the period as conservative and agricultural, the words are far more obscuring than revealing. The wealthy men and women of the southern states were intimately connected with the global trade networks and fully capable of participating in them with agency, and even aggressive agency at that. Planters made connections with banks in New York for capital, contracted with factors in Boston to sell the product to British factories, and then sailed to France to experience old-world culture for themselves. The South that cotton built was neither opposed to change nor hidebound and insular. It became, however, deeply opposed to changes not in the interest of the planter class, and its tastes for culture came laced with a certain snobbery. Several facts about the planter class would have serious repercussions later on. Obviously, those with limited objections to slavery, or no scruples at all, were, of course, the ones most likely to take advantage of the rich opportunities. And we are not just talking about southern-born people here, as many northerners or European immigrants went south to find their own opportunities. On the other hand, those who freed their slaves, or never had any financial interest in slavery, were increasingly pushed out of influence. This meant that, to a considerable degree, the men with time to advance their ideas and take political offices were also much more likely to be slave owners or have commercial ties to the cotton plantations, and were increasingly talking to one another in their own sphere of ideas. Furthermore, it was an increasingly narrow class as we approach 1860, as big plantations tended to expand and snap up land nearby, or set up their children on ever more westward lands and block out other settlers. The absolute number of slave owners may have increased over time, but their proportion in society was shrinking even as they became individually more and more wealthy. This contributed heavily to a major change in the conception of slavery, which emerged slowly but began to take over during the 1830s. Slavery's defense, up to that point, had principally been that slave owners were as stuck as anyone else. The institution was evil, but at least temporarily necessary. Now, given that many of the planters were permanently deep in debt, this was not entirely a self-serving lie, though I invite the listener to make their own judgment. Many of these men who promoted those ideas indeed slowly emancipated their slaves, and perhaps that process would have continued and accelerated on its own accord. But as the decades passed, the old generation passed with it. The slaveholding aristocracy of 1776 ebbed slowly in favor of the rising tide of more commercialized plantation owners, particularly along the Mississippi, and the ideology behind slavery changed to declare it as a positive good. That is, and I am not making this up, slave owners began more and more to claim that slavery was good in and of itself, for the slave as well as the master. This was, to say the least, a fairly unconvincing declaration to anyone outside the system, and really even to those within it. Many factors led to the development of this ideology, but among the biggest were fears of a slave uprising. In the South, especially following the Haitian Revolution, a great, if often unstated, fear coursed through the free citizenry that the slaves or free African Americans would start their own liberation it was not lost on the white citizenry of South Carolina, at least along the plantation-heavy coasts, that they were wealthy and seemingly powerful, but vastly outnumbered by their own slaves. Conspiracies to spark uprisings in the United States, both real and imagined, seemed to prove the point, at least to those who wanted to prove it. Men such as John C. Calhoun, and we will definitely be discussing him down the line, viewed or wished to view slaves as mere passive recipients of their master's power and authority, and could not tolerate any contradiction of this imagined reality. That said, how did slaves see their situation, and how did they live within it? After all, African-Americans were not just weak-willed subjects of the slave owner's power, however much those slave owners might wish it. They had their own willpower, and they exercised it within the bounds that they could. Yet at the same time, violent reactions and uprising from slaves remained quite rare. Slaves did not like the system, and in fact we know from their own words that they hated their bondage. But they are humans like any other. And like people everywhere, they found ways to make a life where and how they could. Later on in this series, we will deal with resistance and how that affected the United States both before and during the Civil War. But for now, let's briefly discuss the lives of enslaved Americans. While most slave owners owned only a few slaves, or perhaps only one, the substantial majority of slaves lived on plantations with 20 or more fellows, often with several nearby plantations. That is, the slave population was unevenly distributed and tended towards concentration in plantation-heavy areas most specifically along the Mississippi River region and the eastern coastal districts, as well as a broad swath of land called the Black Belt connecting them. Now, it's actually named for the type of soil along it, not specifically for the presence of African Americans, although many African Americans lived and still live there. Now, in its own way, this region provided a crucial support system for slaves, as well as a vast network which could transmit ideas and culture across the south. Although it also kept slaves in a system of relative isolation from the cultural mainstream. Now plantation life formally centered on the master's house, but field hands would have rarely ventured inside and spent most of their time tending to the crops and workshops, uh, laboring in whatever tasks or chores they had been assigned with very little time left over to take care of their own lives and health. However, even the laboring slaves were not entirely helpless within the plantation system. Masters could, and they most definitely did, exercise corporal punishment over slaves, but it should never be forgotten that no amount of force can compel obedience. On some level, masters did have to negotiate, and we have some evidence that the process of mobilizing the plantation labor force could involve some amount of carrots to go along with the multitude of sticks. While slaves did not have much time to rest or enjoy themselves, they could and often did obtain permission to go on short trips to visit friends or family, attend revivals, go fishing, or otherwise try to make their lives a hair more comfortable. Food would have been a major area of concern. While the diet of slaves was enough that the slave population expanded in sync with the overall American population, it was not a rich or generous portion by any stretch of the imagination especially for agricultural workers who needed hearty meals. The worst deficiency, however, was not intentionally or even from miserliness, but from the predominance of corn. Now, while corn has many fine qualities, it is not nutritionally complete. Fortunately, at least some meat-based protein, usually salted pork, formed a routine part of the slaves' meals. The meat might have been raised right on the plantation, but much of the corn for the South's slave population came down from the Midwest. On the whole, a slave's diet had barely enough calories for labor, but it was still bland and needed more to avoid vitamin deficiency. To that end, slaves often had tiny garden plots or forage for wild plants or fished, which of course carved into their precious free time. When at work, which would have been for long hours nearly every day, corporal punishment and the fear of physical violence for any infraction, real or imagined, was the ongoing nightmare slaves had to endure. Masters held the power to torture and mutilate their slaves with near impunity, even to the point of killing slaves on occasion. For those who weren't quite callous enough, overseers handled the ugly details of organizing each day's work and carrying out whatever violence they believed to be required. Not surprisingly, overseers do not come off as being particularly reputable characters in the historical record. Many of them employ beatings or whippings as mere everyday, quote, unquote, encouragement, with no fault necessary on the part of the slave. Other overseers or masters use cruelties and torments to work out their personal stress or frustration, a practice which does not much endear them to the historian. It should be admitted, however grudgingly, that not every plantation or master was so harsh, and we do have records of more reasonable or conscientious plantation owners as well, just because, well, there are good and bad people all over. But whether such could be said to be in the majority is a deeply questionable idea, and I intend to leave it at that. Still, in the worst case, the worst aspect of slavery lay not merely in the physical mistreatment or the lack of material goods, Rather, it was the crushing of the spirit of slaves, forbidden to ever better themselves or their circumstances. I must point out how genuinely and deeply un-American that is. The Declaration of Independence almost literally defines the spirit of America as self-betterment. Now, slavery obviously contradicts the idea that men are created equal, but it also denies the following passage, that men have the right to Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. A slave owned it little, and nothing that could not be taken away, and could hope for very little improvement in life, and had precious few ways to even pursue such while being forced to endless work on behalf of others. And even the kindliest master was still ultimately a master, with all the vulnerability and fear that meant for slaves, especially enslaved women who faced the threat of rape or other sexual violence. And that is where I will close today. There are many more aspects of slavery to discuss. And I do plan to come back to this question in the future. We haven't even started talking really about the life of slave women who were in many cases, more crucial to the emerging African-American community than men, nor of their special concerns and fears, but that will have to wait for another time. This is a topic so huge that it will likely span several episodes throughout the early part of this series. Now, in the next episode, we will venture in a very different direction and explore the transportation revolution, a crucial but often overlooked element of the American and global experience. Thank you for joining us today on the U.S. Civil War podcast, and I hope that you will return in the future.